I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. The June 8th DevOps Lunch and Learn was about infrastructure pipelines. So this idea that we're actually composing infrastructure tasks, provisioning, configuration, security, monitoring all together into a sequence of events like a Linux pipeline, a Linux command line with pipes in it uh, is was our topic today. And we talked about how hard it is to build robust, resilient infrastructure. The theme was supposed to be what could go wrong, finding the weak links in our infrastructure, and fundamentally, I think we all think it's all weak links. And uh, then we had a good conversation about how we actually build and automate robust uh, applications. And we didn't come to a consensus. I'm interested to hear where your head is at the end of this. I was going to ask whether you'd seen that the tech press about VMware becoming the uh, the security, trying to become a security giant. No. Uh, they're supposedly going big into security, probably because of all the press they got with their insecurity. But um, <laughs> there, there were a couple of articles, one in um, Alex's news yeah, and there's a, and it was somewhere else too in the smaller tech tech thing, but it looks like they're pushing to integrate security and security planning and whatnot into their line, and that's sort of a direction it looks like they're trying to head. That makes sense. Didn't they buy like Carbon Black or something like that? They made a, a big security. Yeah, project. they did. Hmm. So they're looking to do with in the data center what Azure did in the cloud with with their with their own security product integration I just saw the headlines I didn't read the articles but supposedly it's uh, a strategic push as opposed to a tactical push so probably <laughs> hmm. Right. I'll have to keep an eye on that. And I'm not in a position where I find myself using VMware a lot these days, but uh, I mean, it's it's always interesting to see what happens when uh, when vendors try to um, coalesce. Well, and yeah, and I think uh, with their 9.8 vulnerability that. Um, yeah. was a zero day that they found that last week became uh, an in-the-wild, uh, fairly broad attack across all VMware. Um, yeah, I think in some ways they kind of sort of had to come up with something too. I bet you they had lots of meetings last week. <laughs> that was, well, they, they knew that was coming, right? That wasn't a... They, that was a, a known known issue. They've been trying to get people to patch um, without revealing the, the CVE. Yeah, my understanding of it. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think I mean security. It's you know we're getting what through a daily barrage of security challenges with this between the ransomware and the VMware you know, chip security stuff, things like that. Well, okay. <laughs> uh, so we've got to do. We've got to do something. Um, we do. We do a lot of VM business. 
but usually at the layer below of securing VMware. And most, most people don't have a very good story about patch and update. Nobody has a good story about patch and update. Well, of course, VMware is going to be selling it more along the line of we're secure, but what you put on top of us, we will secure. Uh, and I think that would be a smart that's be a smart place to go. Yeah. But interesting. That speaking of VMware, has has anybody seen anything out of their salt acquisition? Not, not sure, really, no. I I hadn't either. It's been completely quiet, but salt had been pretty quiet before. So Yeah, I have not heard. I have not seen anything. Definitely not seen anything. That's all I saw. What was that, John? It just changed all their website links. That's what I saw. It made it hard, harder to find info. Also, <laughs> <laughs> oh, good a good case of, of good technology not not winning. Or. Uh, salt, it's their problem is they never figured their business model out. And when they tried to monetize it, they did it in a way that was just hugely stupid. <laughs> you know, so they had, I mean, salt stack, there, there were several things that was missing. Um, and what they attempted to do to fix that was to create an enterprise version that only ran as part of their SaaS. So for most people, it was a non-starter. You've got existing salt deployments there at scale, and now you want to add salt into your failure path. I didn't want to. <laughs> so, so actually, I'd be interested to use that as a segue into the, the topic du jour, which was weak link analysis. Um, because I, I really wonder you know, just how, you know, we've been building these really interconnected systems. Um, and I, I don't know that people appreciate how interconnected they are uh, until they start to break. And so now you've reintroduced the whole Fastly problem that happened today. Yeah. No, we got a ton of alerts on the Fastly stuff going down. Um, 5.49 a.m., which sounds like a, a, it was, to me, having worked in something along these lines in the past, it sounded like a capacity issue. Something hit a wall and brought everything else down because it was right about the time where East Coast was really starting to wake up. Hmm. Has there been any, I mean, it was a global global issue yes but it hit at 549 est so so you so you think it's something environmentally triggered not not human triggered well i think it was human triggered but i think that that something had a limit on it and they went over limit and it crashed things go there there's two things will make a global outage into it and and you know, Fastly in particular, there, there's a, a bad network push that causes um, 
a global network failure on it and they have a really weird ass bgp architecture the way they do this shit um or it's dns it's got to be something that's because they're, they're fully broken up and distributed like virtually every other cdn so what are the layers connect them and it's it's a network and it's dns yeah so they pushed a a, a bad uh path and when that weak path and here we are weak uh, uh thin straw got stressed as east coast woke up because that was the next thing it brought everything down it's, it's not it's probably not stressed up that's not, so like when when uh will presley <laughs> edgecast decided to push a dns change out and it was a bad change and it broke every dns server globally right it had nothing to do with stress it had to do with he fat fingered an entry and, and basically took down edgecast globally yeah, right. but um, Fastly, all it took down was their di distribution network. So they pushed a path where their distribution network was all filtered through a place that couldn't handle the traffic. Uh, I, I don't know. I haven't looked at it at all, but I'm just, if it's DNS, there's nothing to do with traffic at all. It's just it's down because they can't resolve the site anymore. Was that what is the Fastly, Fastly's DNS infrastructure got looped or something? I don't know. Uh, like I don't. There are details. Yeah, all oh, I know. I mean, it is always DNS. That's the trademark. But well, yeah, and uh, the article in the Washington Post. Admittedly, this is a post. They talked yeah. about the uh, uh, pushing a change that sent everything through Pennsylvania for a oh, small okay. ISP through Pennsylvania. So fat fingering, but push pushing oh. it. Pushing right. the network traffic through a like a, BGP a thin straw. Update. Well, and that's why I mentioned the BGP because the way they do their BGP is insane, right? Every machine talks to every other machine, BGP, <sighs> and that's how they actually do their networking because they originally had no they originally had no networking, so their BGP like had a million routes in it. <laughs> so yeah, it could take a few hours to repropagate the BGP maps. Mm -hmm. And that's what it that's what it was. It was out for about three, four hours. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Just knowing a little bit of that <laughs> yeah. listen call. <laughs> no, knowing how they constructed themselves is, definitely is uh informs the guesswork. <laughs> yeah. Uh BGP, the good thing about BGP, right, though, is it, well, two things about it. So BGP, you can just restart the, the, the service, right? And it will rediscover. So you can actually force BGP rediscovery more quickly rather than laying on route propagation. Um, unless, which has happened as well, um, unless they propagated, the problem with BGP is it propagates downstream. It goes off your network. Right. So you yeah. can actually poison downstream dens. Yeah. So it's well, not a the way they did their stuff. Well, I think you're right that it's BGP, not DNS, because DNS would have affected other services. And literally, it was just the Fastly connected services that were affected. Well, DNS can, so if you're if you're serving up malt, malt or excuse me, any gas, right? And, and you propagate a bad any gas DNS response, 
and, and you've set a TTL of one day on it, guess how long you're down? <laughs> yep, a day. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Where, where were you trying to go with the weakest, weakest link? There's so many of them. <laughs> well, this is I, I think what this is what we're we're talking about. So I mean, right, from a DevOps perspective, I'm building up my infrastructure, got my application running, and you know, I'm trying to build a scalable application. What's gonna burn me? So in in, this... in that in that in that list. And then so my thought was that, you know, share some stories, think about you know, places where people really get burned and then talk through, you know, is, are there mitigating circumstances? Or so this is where systems thinking way back when could have really helped a lot now because in systems, there is, when you design a system, you have to take into account everything that interacts with the system and what happens when your system goes down, how does it affect all the other systems and vice versa? Mm -hmm. But since there was no systems thinking and the, the architecture of a lot of our, our cloud infrastructure, <laughs> everything is a weak link, like John said. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it also doesn't help that the complexity of our architectures has really exploded. Uh, I mean, 20 years ago, system thinking was still viable because <laughs> you had uh, a limited complexity on, on your system. Like you, you wouldn't think about relying on, on, on our service on, on the other side of the world because you just didn't have, didn't, no such network existed in the first place. Uh, I mean, internet was just starting to come out, but it was not reliable to the point where where it's considered reliable today. Yeah. Um, nowadays, I think it's more practical to look at look at it like I did in terms of what is the weakest link that I can do something about. Mm -hmm. I mean, if 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 I'm using AWS uh, or and and AWS breaks. Can I do something about it? No. So I'm not going to worry about it. Well, but but if if I break something in my deployment, then I'm going to do something about that. <laughs> Interest. Yeah. So is are you saying that part of the appeal of AWS is blame shifting? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, it, I, it, it, it's it's definitely not price. <laughs> it's, it's not I, like I, I, if you're the CEO of a company and you're you're losing a million dollars every minute, it's down, and and AWS goes down. I guarantee you that this, the CEO isn't going to blame Amazon or the CIO. Why, why weren't you multi-cloud? Why didn't you plan for this? Right? Um, I don't know. The, the problem there's several facets to to kind of the failure analysis side, right? So, you know, one um, is just, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, poorly architected systems, right? Um, so I had an argument once with a, a senior architect at Ericsson over why trying to maintain fine-grained globally distributed state was a bad idea. And they didn't understand why. Um, 
and, and that complexity changes based on the scale that goes into it. So a lot of systems are simply never designed to scale out because the people putting them together just didn't have that expertise. Um, and you know, in fairness, there's not a lot of people that have built um, large-scale distributed applications is good. I, I think the second one is really time budget, right? How many things do we all know we need to go fix, right? That are vulnerabilities out there, but it simply doesn't meet the schedule. We just don't have enough resources to actually get it done. I don't need to do any analysis. I just know I don't have enough time to, to get to it. And I think the third is, you know, what are the unknowns? in my stuff and, and you get the system that you're doing, I got a, you know, chaos, right? Testing is, is how do you find the unknowns in a controlled um, fashion into it? Um, yeah, that was kind of the fourth. And then they, the, the third, the fourth rambling talk I had, their, their thought is listening to this is, you know, there, there are ways of engineering out um, the dependencies of whether it's salt stack or it is Ansible or it is Chef or Puppet but our, our, as I said before, I, I, my view of our current DevOps tool stack is that it's completely broken um, in all aspects, and it does not implement best practices for software engineering. Um, and until we hmm. fix that, right, you're, you're not going to have reliable DevOps tool networks, and you're not going to have flexibility or composability. That was my ramble. <laughs> Yay. Uh, no, John, I, I want to actually yeah. thank you because... You bring quite the uh, awareness of true scale into this conversation. Uh, it's kind of like the first time I ran into mainframes and realized it was a totally different world. And telecom is just a totally different world from the rest of uh, uh, com computer networks, or has been up until recently. I think telecom own species. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> They it's, just found a new uh, dinosaur in Australia, and they called it uh, Astrolotitan. <laughs> I think that's what we should call it, Erickson Titan. Uh, <laughs> you know, Australia was an interesting one because you know they had the, the National Data Network. They decided to um, make broadband network a government service. They took it out of the private sector. Oh, like a utility, like electrical utility? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why, like, so, um, um, Telstra and, and the, the mm -hmm. telcos there are just getting decimated now. They, they, so the government privatized it or whatever you want, not privatized it, they publicized, I don't know what you call that. Um, uh, yeah, that's so they, they've, been, that's, they've been doing that for about 10 years now, and they're now finally turning all that stuff up. So your ISP is now the government. And what they're doing, the way they're, they're justifying is they're letting the existing networks resell the government resource. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, but that company, yeah, that's that's like probably taken out literally two-thirds of the workforce. Do you, do you think that there's an argument around pace of change on this stuff? Because right, part you're you're talking about modularity and composability, which I, I'm a huge fan of. Part of that would re rely on being able to have standard interchangeable parts from that perspective, right? I could actually have a common module that I could use in multiple places. 
Um, it's one aspirational talk. It's like the, the galaxy, the opposite of what Galaxy did. Uh, <laughs> but the, the you know, are, are things just moving too fast? Would this be safer if we slowed slowed it down? Or, you know, can it slow down? So I don't think this is why standardizations right of APIs are so critical. Mm. Because if you standardize the API, when you extend the API along agreed upon terms, the old stuff still works and the new stuff will work once that extension has been, been implemented. Well, that's not completely true, but I, let me let me tell you where I think I... I I, I think experience, at least in my world, is is leading me that APIs um, are not where you normalize things out. I won't even use the word standardize. It's all around um, the data objects or the messages that you're passing back and forth, right? All I need to know is how to consume a data object, how I got that data object, whether it's via an API or an event or something else, right? I, I don't care about that. All I know is I have an object coming in and I want to know how to, to um, type that version it, and then be able to process that. Um, and so like when you think about APIs, it's two sides of that. There's API versioning, then there's data versioning. And the latter is what virtually no APIs do, right? And, and yeah, that's the right. most important yeah. part. Um, and then once you do that, right, um, you get into the notion of, so like in, in you know, my, my world, Right. I, I want to know how to put together. So when I, when, I, when I complain about the tool networks, what I complain about the fact is they're written monolithically. Right. It, it's it's not like a Unix pipeline where I can put five things together and compose something new very quickly because I've got mm -hmm. really hard yeah. to whether I want a key management, I want something else into there. I, I've got, I am choosing to go into the Tecton camp or I'm choosing to go into Tool X camp. Right. And, and my ability to compose those things and swap things out um, for one thing, one thing for another in that today is almost non-existent. I, I've got to go submit a PR or fork a repo to try and get a new feature request into it. So we, we lack composability in the tool network. And if you're going to break it apart, how are you going to communicate between those things? Is by defining what are the resources that are um, consumed or produced. Um, versioning those things such that I could take out an Ansible in one case and throw in a tool Y, right? And it doesn't really matter because we're all talking at the same object level. Um, so I think that's a fundamental shift. And if we're doing that in an application, right, th that's kind of the whole notion of microservices functions, domain different design. We, we decompose to a simple responsibility and then define how we basically um, export and consume resources out of those. Um, but our tool networks, we use tools today, they're, they're like arcane compared to the way we write software. I'm curious. I, I, I'm, it's funny because do, I'm doing presentations that sound a lot like what you're saying. The mm -hmm. added wrinkle is that the, the thing that makes the pipelining hard um, is that the different things in the pipeline have different contexts of operations and have to bounce between different contexts. So part of like, like I've been, I've been struggling with this to the point where we're starting to describe our work as infrastructure pipelining, which, which to solve the problems that you're describing, it's like, I'm composing a whole bunch of steps together. I need to 
be able to chain them into work, that is its own automation, its own thing, its own yeah. infrastructure pipeline. And then the, and which makes sense logically, the, the challenge that we, we used to get into and have had to work, work with is that that pipeline, sometimes you do things as provisioning where you're doing it from the system level. And sometimes you're doing it as configuration where you're doing it inside a system. And sometimes you're doing it, you know, with, you know, external, not, not node infrastructure at all, but the DNS or the, you know, key generation stuff or security token and like that. And you have to, the, the pipeline is not just, oh, provision something, stop. It's provision something, then configure something, then provision something else, then configure that, then provision something else and configure that and then wrap it all together. Um, and that's, I, I, that's, yeah. I, I don't see those as separate things. I, I agree there's context to it, right? And, yeah. um, you know, I, I see that context expressed in, in things like environments and strategies and other components to how you do that. Um, but I think that, I guess I don't think um, there's a set of tasks that needs to get completed, right? And, and they're going to get run. How they get run, you may not even know. Right, because you don't really care in a declarative system. All you really want to know is it got to the state you wanted at the end, and that is inclusive of infrastructure and application and their required configuration underneath it. Right. So, in a truly declarative system, you want to define what the world's going to look like when this thing is completed running. How it got there is not necessarily something you need to care about. Right. So it could be you need a tagger, right, to, to tag all these various releases into it. And all you care about is it supports tagging with SHA or some other um, format into it, and it can tag different classes of resource, right? You don't necessarily care who, who provided it, right? Whether it was um, uh, Ansible or Chef, right? You just know someone needed to tag it, right? And so task needs to get performed as part of that pipeline. Um, what you care about then is when you do call that thing, whatever it is, because you're now introducing the notion of discoverability into this, right? Um, and when you do call that thing, you have to be able to trust it, right? You, you have to know that the object you're getting from it, the task it's performing, or the object that you're sending to it, all, all three of those elements are secure, right? which implies strong signing and it applies immutability and some other characteristics to it. Um, there's, there's also a degree of where you can take those actions from, right? You can't do configuration of a system outside of that system. You have to do it inside the system. So you have to be inside and you can't do cloud provisioning inside of that system because it's a security violation. So you have to be outside of the system. One of the things that I think made, made Docker so mind-bendingly hard for the chefs and puppets and and salt, uh, uh, or yeah, chef puppet and salt. Is there the idea that you would take actions on an environment outside of the the environment um, was you know and and not be and it be immutable was really weird for them. Yeah, I once again I think <clears throat> so. One, give me an example. Take I, I don't not hundred percent following what you mean. Um, like actions outside of a system. No, so so what I see a lot of people doing is they do pair, they do a Terraform to bring up a system. They get the results from the Terraform. They build an Ansible inventory, and then they run Ansible to finish the configuration on that system. Uh -huh. 
right? And then, um, and then you know, and then the system is is in use for that that period of time. And then, if actually you want to build a cluster, you're handing it off to something else, or you're rebuilding your Ansible inventory to to try and make all that stuff work. Um, but that's what you know. There, you know, people who try to do uh, like there is a SSH module in Terraform, so that you could configure inside of Terraform. Or there is a there are cloud modules inside of Ansible that you could set the thing up in Ansible, and then create a you know and then you have to write inventory files. It's really messy. Um, both models are are neither one, neither tool does the other thing well. Is my point? Yeah. So I, what I would have said is that the models are, are models for our current models for expressing the totality of what needs to happen to bring a service online are inadequate. That's right. I, I, yes. And I think the other thing I would have said out of that statement is the model we use to provision infrastructure and the model we use to provision applications should not be different. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's. Go ahead, John. Keep going. So, well, <laughs> so I've been trying to, to, to express is a way where we can actually specify provisioning of a complete tool network, and, and that's all the above, right? And, and you have one, <clears throat> one way of specifying infrastructure application, configuration, operational support, and it's the same thing, right? You, you shouldn't have to have, because I think what happens today is, is the reason you have um, one tool uh, like Terraform provisioning infrastructure, another tool like Ansible provisioning applications is coming from two different teams who have two different views of the world, two different stacks that they have skill sets in, which I think it actually just creates an organizational challenge and how do we actually communicate, right? And, and then, you know, some tools like SALT in particular make it even more difficult because they try and come up with every metaphor you can related to SALT, grains, pillars. I mean, it's just the, the syntax <laughs> is, yeah, is that's right. it's horrible just to figure out what the hell they were trying to talk about at first. Um, but I think, um, yeah, the higher level, right? I think that the, the things that seem to be um, resonating with with people when we have conversations around some of this stuff is, um, you know, the, the the notion of basically having um, reusable components of code, right? And and well, reusable components, period. Right, that, that we can construct together into a new application or new pipeline, that, that we capture those things in best practices into it, and that we create composability across the entire spectrum of things in a single language are, are things that people, I think, inherently understand. Um, but I, I think, you know, the fragility is in the tools today. And so, layers of agility, tools and people. Right. And so John was talking earlier about uh, the data objects are, need to be standardized. And actually, it's not the data objects. It's the model objects. We need to come together. And what when you look at object-oriented coding, it's the object that's standardized. What's inside, who cares about what the data is as long as the methods and the way to access the data within the module and transfer information. And so if we can standardize the objects of our model, 
then we can compose based on objects. So it's a little bit, it's one step higher than data, but in many ways it's harder because there, there's so many different pieces instead of just the, the data. And you look at network stack and the data is encapsulated in messages that are standardized and the interactions of how you handle the messages, the methods of handling the methods, messages. And so I think that's where we need to come together on just defining how to state the models of all these different pieces such that they are consistent across all the different pieces. I guess my... Go ahead. Go ahead, John. So what I was going to say is I think that... Um, I think there's a more pragmatic approach to it, right? All I need for that data to be useful or that object to be useful is some group of people around some um, domain to agree upon something, right? It doesn't have to be global or ubiquitous. It just needs to be some subset of people uh, agree what this thing is going to mean and how it's going to be useful. And I think the, 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 utility of that will it drive adoption or not. But today there's no method to getting that consensus. Right. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, do you think it's really required to have that consensus? I mean, this is the Terraform lesson to me. It's like Terraform, instead of trying to make a universal cloud panel or cloud API, they just said, screw it. Everyone's different. I'm going to let it let them all be different. Right. They, they don't try. Yeah, I don't think consensus is even possible in, in many cases. Like the, the, the model is highly personalized. Um, and what might be the right model for you is most definitely not the right model for, uh, for me. I, I got to tell you, so in all the years we've been doing engineering and, and all the CDNs and all the various distributed services I've seen putting together, I was talking about the, our guys at Google last week. They don't vary that much. <laughs> There's only so many ways of slicing a, 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 a concept to come into play. And, and I could name off on one hand the number of ways we've implemented proxies, and um, it will cover 99% of those things. So I, I, uh, I think there, there's so much, there is more commonality into it. I think that the problem with um, the screw it and let's not standardize is, is what it creates on the operations side. Right. Um, and from that, I mean, it, it basically creates endless snowflakes. We cannot operate things efficiently if it's just a Wild West show out there. And so. Here's I, I you're, you're hitting something that, that we hit all the time. And I, I agree with you and disagree, which is a weird dilemma. Yeah. Um, functionally, these things are very similar. And you're right. The, the router and DNS and things like that are, are, are very similar in what they do, and that's good. Operating systems are very similar in what they do, right? The difference between CentOS, Ubuntu, and Debian, you know, by and large is not that much, but it's, it's, it is still different. There's still, there's still quirks that, that mean that you have to deal with things a little bit differently. And I, I, don't, I just don't see the quirks converging. Like we... Um, Red, uh, Redfish spec is supposed to converge IPMI and, you know, kumbaya, everybody's using Redfish and, and now all machines have the same control interfaces. And 
even the just they, they might have the same API, but the implementation behind those APIs is different enough to not make it standard, right? And and I, I think oh, I've... oops, we we you know we didn't do this the same way, and all of a sudden now you've got to deal with a quirk in the way a command works. And and, and you have the legacy cool. systems that that have not adopted the new spec. So now instead of one spec to replace five, you have six specs. Six. Like the, the well, like the classic XKCD. Yeah. Uh, I, I take well, that. And, and it's what, like for this one, it's even it's even worse because it depends on the even even if you were like, oh, I'm all redfish, it's like redfish what version? Because if they change the behavior, you know, now we're back to Terraform again. If you change the behavior between two versions in some way, you have to accommodate what that changes. Or if you add a feature that's not available universally, you have to be aware as you build it that, hey, there's a feature that's available now that isn't you know, in it. We, we deal with that all the time with the feature flag. We talked about feature flags in a previous call. Yeah, but isn't that, a, isn't that the fragility of APIs in general? Right, what you're talking about is APIs not, not being versioned, the data is changing between them. Like in, in salt stack, right? The other thing that was painful between versions, and particularly since they use Python, is they'd introduce some new attribute right in, in the stream and all of a sudden you get some some python minion down there the road just spewing tracebacks because it got some element it didn't know how to process yeah right so there's the api changes right there's the data changes which in the case of, of salt stack it results in a system failure right um yeah so they're, they're both at equal importance into it right in in terms of of making this less fragile i i, I take the tact of I, I can't change the past. <laughs> so when it comes to the legacy systems, yeah, I, I will get you. It's, it's going to be messy for a while, it, right? It kind of sounds like the the the, the cell stack problem is something that uh, Go tried to address with their pro buffers, where you, you where you not only have your version but the spec in in, in your uh, in your protocol that, uh, declaration. Goes, Go has been more resilient in passing passing API objects around. Well, Go, Go did two things. And so I think it, it mainly deals with their encoders and decoders. So first off, Go is strongly typed. So it doesn't have the Python problem to begin with, right? If, if, if you pass Python, something doesn't know what to deal with, it's backtrace time, right? Um, so that's one side they did. And the second side that they did, and it kind of goes back to some of the, the, the principles of Go, of, of you know, basically implementing in their core libraries best practices of design, right? If you do an import on uh, an object and the object you're importing has more fields or doesn't have certain fields, that that's not you know they're just going to wind up in nil or they're not going to get added into the data structure. So they allowed for the fact data was going to change over time in their core libraries, right? So I think that's what makes it more resilient, strong typing and. Um, you know, the, the, the uh, anticipation of things not being there, right? Um, but in this case, there's there's no equivalency of that in Python, right? There, there's not like a safe import for, for reading JSON. Maybe there is, maybe I just haven't found it, right? But I gave up on Python because of the lack of typing. Um, and yeah, the, the efficiencies they had in Go, I think have been, you know, they've been getting addressed now for a long time. I think the last thing they've improved their handling. Um, they've improved the static binding things now, sporting shared objects, the web assembly, the latest version into it. Um, and now it's really just, you know, the, the um, 
but what's the word I'm looking for? The, the, the typing of, of pieces into generics is what they're working on right now. I think Go is a pretty reasonable language at that point, but I think it's different than um, you know what you should have in it. So like with Kubernetes, right? There's the version of the API, right? But you know, there's also said the versioning of the object, whether it's an object or a data element, right? I think that's something that just you don't see in code, and it's fundamentally missing. It, it's I should say it's fundamentally required, and it's most often missing. So no easy answers on building infrastructure automation. Um, there's a lot to consider and a lot to build. Um, you know, do you believe that John is right and we need more standards? Do you think that I have a, a grounds in saying just get over it and we're going to have to figure this out as we go? Um, or do you believe, and probably most correctly, that we're both right and we're, we're going to have to figure this out to build things that are more resilient in the future. I want to hear from you at the2030.cloud. Looking forward to it. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.